Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We have been in the midst of a series uh, that has uh, been centered on the topic of worship, a series that we've called Come Together, Staying Connected in a Disconnected World. This series has helped answer the question, why do we come together to worship? Why do we come together to worship? Every Sunday, we, we gather here in this room and we, we worship. Why do we do so? Well, I, I put out there a couple of weeks ago that the reason why we come together to worship really is twofold. We come together because of who He is and because of who we are. Now, we began two weeks ago by talking more about that second part. We come together because of who we are. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and how we are members of the household of God. We come together because of our identity, our connection with Him. We are those who have been saved in Christ, and we gather together as a part of God's family, an expression of our identity. We come together because of who we are. Then last week, Pastor Brian continued our series by talking a little bit about what worship is, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of worship. Brian walked us through John 4 last week. But today, we're going to conclude our series by looking at the second part of that idea that I shared two weeks ago, and that is that we come together because of who He is. Now, this is the message that you should expect in a series like this. Uh, we generally understand that the reason why we come together to worship is because of God, because of how great He is, because of Jesus. Uh, we understand that, at least at some level. If I were to ask you to, to write down a definition on paper as to why it is that you come together to worship, probably somewhere in the first few words would be something about God. We come together because of who He is. Now, this is not only common to our understanding of worship, but it's also common to our understanding of life. We are used to showing up places based on who is going to be there or who is going to be honored. great example of that comes from just this past week when uh, the Russell Westbrook watch came to a close. And I can go about doing something else on my Google feed every day from, except searching, where is Russ going to be? Um, but Russell Westbrook decided to sign a contract extension with the Oklahoma City Thunder. And when he did that, he was going to make that announcement at a press conference that was going to be held at the Chesapeake Energy Arena on Thursday afternoon. Now, even though it was a press conference, hardly something that is exciting, and, and even though it happened on a day where the temperature approached 100 degrees, and even though it happened inside of a work day, over 1,500 people showed up at the Chesapeake Energy Arena to welcome Russ as the blue carpet was literally rolled out for him. And he walked in and he said how many millions of dollars he was going to make in this contract. Now, here's, here's the thing. Um, I, I, you got to know this. I, I love Russell Westbrook. Um, I, I do. I'm so uh, happy that he signed with the Thunder. But it's, it's an interesting thing. Why did everybody go there? Why did we care? We cared because of who was being honored. After the summer of KD, we were excited that Russ chose to stay. We came together because of who was there. Now, that is true of the Oklahoma City Thunder. It's certainly true of a number of other areas in our life. You could just search your brain and think about the last time you showed up someplace based on who was being honored. But 
When you think about it, that's really what is happening here, but on a much greater scale. If we will show up at an arena to celebrate someone who will make a few of our nights more interesting, how much more so do we show up every weekend to celebrate the God who has prepared our eternity? Um, We come together because of who He is. Now, I mentioned earlier, generally we know that's true, but we forget it, don't we? We forget how great God is. And because of that, we begin to think that, that worship is not quite as important because we have somehow diminished our view of God. Or we have come to think of our times in worship as merely collections of activities. If worship is about somebody standing up in front of you talking on a stage, delivering a sermon like this, or maybe you think of worship as some music uh, that is sung or that you sing along to, or if you think of, of worship as a basket that is passed or a card that is filled out, if you have reduced worship to just the activities that take place in this room, then you can begin to think that it's not all that important. But if we remember that we come together because of who He is, and we have an accurate understanding of who He is, and it's a powerful motivator for us to come together and to worship His name. And this morning, what I want to do is I want us to just expand our understanding of who He is. And I want to do so by looking at the book of Colossians chapter 1 in verses 15 through 23, and what are really some of the, the best verses in the entire New Testament that talk about the theological identity of Jesus Christ. If you wanted to see an ID card for Jesus, these are great verses to look at. Because it talks about who He is. It exalts Him above all others. And it encourages us to worship Him in faith. So what I want to do is I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and, and see a little more in depth what these words mean. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, and this is what he says. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, in these verses, we really see one thing. It's, we're going to center our conversation today on this one point. We come together because of who He is. Paul is, is razor-focused here. 
on the identity of Jesus Christ. And, and so should we as we consider why we would come to worship. We need to remember who it is that we are worshiping. Because we live in a world that wants to confuse us or diminish or dilute the reality of who Jesus is. And this is nothing new. This is, goes all the way back to the first century. The very first people who saw Christ, uh, many of them confused the issue surrounding him. See, Paul writes to the Colossians and he identifies who Jesus is because there was confusion in Colossae about the person of Christ. Now, I think that people in the first century have something in common with us, and that is that people in the first century might have been tempted to think that Jesus was someone who was interesting. People in Colossae, they, they, they would have been hard-pressed to argue that Jesus wasn't at least interesting. I mean, if nothing else, this was a man who had stories of miracles that he had done. He walked on water. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He himself had been risen from the dead. At the very least, people in Colossae would have had to have admitted that Jesus was at least a little bit interesting. At the very least, they would have had to admit that he was even more than interesting. He was influential. The fact that they lived in Colossae, a a different town outside of Israel, and yet this truth had made it all the way to their doors that they would hear about it. They had to admit that Jesus was at least influential. He inspired some people to go and tell others about himself. And not only was he influential, not, not only was he interesting, but it would have been hard for them to argue that he wasn't important. At some level, Jesus would have been someone that would have been seen as, as important, that people would want to call themselves his followers. See, people in, in the first century, they, they couldn't get away from the person of Christ. He had lived just a few years before that. He was interesting. He was influential. He was important. But was he their Lord? Was he God? That really was the question. They knew something about him, but had they embraced him for who he really was? And this is the temptation that we face today in our world, isn't it? I mean, our world is a world that, that cannot argue that Jesus is not interesting. I mean, think of all of the movies that have been made about the, the person of Christ and the books that have been written, the stories that have been told. The, he's interesting. It's impossible for us to get away from the fact that he's influential, There are movements for Christ around the globe. There are people who have have gathered in communities all over, speaking all different languages, who have gathered under the name of Christ, who see him as very important. See, we live in a world that that cannot argue those points. That's why you think about Time Magazine on Easter week. Who's on the cover? Someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Why is that? Because we live in a world that cannot argue those basic points. But does our world understand that he is more than just interesting, important, and influential? Does our world understand that he is the Lord? Do you understand that? You know, many of us in this room gather here today because we understand who Jesus is. We have laid down our lives before him. We've received his act of love as our sacrifice for our salvation, and we are following him in obedience. But there are others who are here today. You're here today because you thought he was interesting. And I'm so glad that you're here. 
But here's what you got to know. Jesus is more than just interesting. He's more than just an important person in history. He's the Lord. He's someone who is worthy for us to follow. He's someone who is worthy for us to worship. And what we see in Colossians 1 is we see Paul begin to talk about who Jesus is. And I want us to, to look at his description of Jesus, and I'm going to organize it around five things we, we learn about Christ that help remind us who he is, that we would come together and worship him. The first thing that we see is this claim that Jesus is God. We see it in the first part of verse 15, and we see it down in verse 19 as well. It says here at verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we see that, uh, sometimes we struggle with grasping what that means because when we think of someone being the image of something, we wonder how good of an image it is. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had these terrible mimeograph copies of papers. Some of you are old enough to remember this. You remember those? It was, a, it, was a, it was an image of whatever the teacher wanted us to have, but it was a bad image of whatever the teacher wanted us to have. It was made with this purple copy stuff, and it just wasn't all that great. And sometimes when we see this in Colossians 1, we begin to think, is, is that the kind of copy that Jesus is of God? Is he some kind of a, a, a second hand, someone who is godly but not God, someone who makes us think about God but isn't God himself? Is that what Paul meant, that Jesus was just reminding us of God? No, that's not what Paul meant. What Paul meant when he said that Jesus was the image of the invisible God was he was saying that Jesus was an exact representation of the nature of God. So that when we looked upon Christ, we saw the character of God. We saw God himself. This is made clear through a number of other places in the Bible, but I want to point us to one of them in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, a central passage on this idea. The author of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. When we see Jesus, we see God. Paul is making a statement here that Jesus is God. It's made further clear in verse 19 when he goes on and says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and not dwell like in a passing way, like in a tent, but to dwell in a permanent way. When we saw Jesus, when we see Jesus, we see the exact representation of God. We see God himself. See, Jesus is God. That's the reason why we can come and sing these songs. Our, our worship today was full of singing songs to God in Jesus. And it's appropriate because Jesus is God. The first thing we see is that He is God. The second thing we see is that He is Creator. Now, when I say that, that might be a little confusing to some because the thought of Jesus as creator is maybe something you haven't considered before. Because you might be thinking, okay, there's a chronology problem here. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So in order for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, that means there must have been a Bethlehem. So how is it that Jesus could be the creator if he was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago? 
Well, it's a good question, but when you look at what the Scripture reveals, it reveals a more complete picture of the identity of Christ. See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He stepped into time at Bethlehem to take on human flesh so that he might die on the cross for our sins. But Jesus has existed eternally. He's existed eternally. We we see this in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter number 1. My fingers are sticking to the pages. In chapter number 1 where he says this, he says, In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. See, Jesus has existed eternally. There was never a point where he did not exist. And it was through Jesus that all things were created. That's the one that we gather and we worship today. And so when Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 and the second part of the first verse, he makes this statement. He says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when we hear that, we might think as some cultic practices in the world today think that this is referring to the fact that Jesus was created. In other words, the firstborn of creation, some would say, means that Jesus was a created being who then created everything else. God created Jesus first, and then he created everything else. Now, that is an idea that the Scripture does not support. It doesn't support it because Jesus is God, and God has existed eternally. Jesus has existed eternally. But it also doesn't even support it from this verse. Because the words that are used here, uh, the word firstborn... When the Apostle Paul wrote, he had access to different words he could use to describe what he's talking about here. There is a Greek word in the original language, there's a Greek word that meant first created. And if Paul wanted to communicate that Jesus was first created and then he created everything else, he would have used that word. But that's not the word he uses. The word he uses is the word for firstborn. Now, When we say that something is firstborn, what is meant, biblically speaking, is the idea of having prominence over everything else. So by saying that Jesus was firstborn over creation, it's saying that Jesus is prominent over all creation. Flip back just a couple of pages to the book of Philippians, and in chapter number 2, verses 9 to 11, we see this clear. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. By saying that Jesus is firstborn, he's tapping into that idea that Jesus is prominent. He is over all creation. Think of it in terms of being the firstborn or, or the, the heir to an inheritance. Jacob instead of Esau. Jacob was not the first one born, but he was the one who received the privilege of the firstborn. What we see of Jesus here is that he is the one who has prominence over all creation. Not only does he have prominence over it, but verse 16 tells us that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
He goes through this, this whole description here. He says that everything that is Jesus created, that means everything in the physical world, but it also means everything in the spiritual world. This idea of thrones and authorities is biblical talk for demons and angels. Jesus created everything. Why is it that as Christians we, we do not have ultimate fear of the physical world because we know who sits in authority over it? Why is it that we don't have to fear demons or, or Satan Satan's activity being able to take us away from, from God? It's because Jesus has authority over them. He is the firstborn of all creation. He sits in sovereignty over it all. And if Jesus says that we're good, then we're good. See, Jesus is the one who created all things, the things that we see and the things that we don't see, the things in the physical realm and the things in the spiritual realm. They were created through Him. He's the one who had the power to do it, but they were also created for Him so that He might receive glory and honor. Verse 17 goes on and says that Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. If Jesus wasn't Jesus, then the world would blow apart. It would lose its connection and its meaning. See, we are gathering today, lifting up the name of the one who created all things. He's the creator. Paul goes through this argument, I think, in part to demonstrate something to his original audience, an audience that was deeply impacted by Greek philosophy, a point that Warren Wiersbe points out in his commentary on Colossians, this is what he says. He says, for centuries, the Greek philosophers had taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. The primary cause is the plan, the instrumental cause, the power, and the final cause, the purpose. When it comes to creation, Jesus Christ is the primary cause. He planned it. The instrumental cause, he produced it. And the final cause, he did it for his own pleasure. Why do we come together and we worship? We do so because it is what we should do. We were created for this. We were created to be connected to the God who created us and to declare his greatness regularly. We come together because of who he is. He is God. He is creator. He's also the head of the church. We see this in verse 18, the first part. It says, and he is the head of the body the church. Now, when we say that he's the head of the body, what he's indicated here is that Jesus is the one that is sitting in sovereignty over the church. Very practically, who is the leader of Wildwood Community Church? It's not me, and it's not the elders even at Wildwood. You know who the leader of Wildwood Community Church is? If we put together an org chart, who would be at the top? Jesus would. Why? Because he is the head of the church. He is the one through whom all churches are rightly identified. I'll give you an example about this. Um, I've I've known Adam for 15 years. Over 15 years. We've been friends for a long time. And and I I know him. um, I I recognize him when I see him. It always brings a smile to my face when I see Adam. Um, but but let, let, me, let me just make a confession. If all I saw was Adam's forearm, just a close-up picture of his forearm, I don't think I could identify him. Now, Kelly might be able to do that, 
Uh, but, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't identify him just by his form. How do I know that it is Adam? I know it is Adam by looking at his head. In the same way, when we think about uh, the church, how do we know if a church is a true church? We know that by seeing if it is attached to the head. If a church calls itself a church but does not make much of Christ, it is not a church because it is Jesus who is the head of the true church. That's why when we open up, we open up His Word and we listen to it. Why, why do we read this, this ancient book? We do so because it is Jesus' church. He is the head, so we will listen to His mouth as we read it. That's why we, we come together and we gather. He is the head of the church. We come together and we worship Him here, and, and it's our prayer for Wildwood that we would be a place that would be known for Christ because it is His church. He is God. He's creator. He's the head of the church. Verse 18 continues, He has conquered death. He's conquered death. It says there, um, it says that He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, there's that word again, firstborn. And this use of firstborn actually helps us understand the other one. Because when you think of it, was Jesus the first one who was ever resurrected? No. Can you think of another example of somebody who was resurrected before Jesus? How about Lazarus in John chapter 11? Jesus wasn't the first one in chronology who was resurrected, but it says here that he is the firstborn of resurrection. When you you go back and you look even at the Old Testament, um, we see that Elijah missed death and ascended into heaven, and before that he resurrected the widow's son who died. Jesus was not the first one who was resurrected, but Jesus is here described as the firstborn from the dead. What is meant by that? What's meant by that is that Jesus is the one who is prominent over death. He is the one who has conquered death. He is the one who sits in sovereignty over death, therefore able to give life to all those who believe in Him. In the book of Romans, in in chapter 8, in verse 11, we saw this earlier in the spring, but Paul makes this statement. He says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, by indicating that Jesus is firstborn from the dead, it reminds us that He is the one who has the ability to usher us through death and into life. Why do we have hope for life after death? We have hope for life after death because of Jesus. He is the one who conquered death. But not only are these four things mentioned, but also the fifth thing we see is that He is the Redeemer. And we see this in verses 20 through 22. It says there, it says, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. See, Jesus, the one who is God, the one who is creator, the one who is the head of the church, the one who has conquered death, He loves you. And He loves me. 
And he has made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. He's made it possible for us to be forgiven. One who could have demanded everything from us, gave everything for us, so that we might be connected to God forever. What a gift and what a blessing. It says in in verse 20 that all things will be reconciled to himself. Now, what is that referring to? I think it's referring to a, a, a look towards the future. A look towards the future that one day there will come a time where Jesus will come back to the earth and all things will be reconciled to him, where every knee will bow before him and where the, even the, the physical world in which we live will be upgraded to a new heaven and a new earth. We see this in Revelation 19 through 22. There will be a time where everything will be reconciled rightly to Christ. But in that moment, when everything is reconciled to Christ, humanity will be split. It'll be split from those who have rejected him and those who have placed their faith in him. Those who have placed their faith in Christ will see through the blood of the cross peace made with God so that they might be presented to God holy and blameless. Not because they were holy and blameless in their own actions, but because they have been presented that way, cleansed by the work of Christ. Friends, when we gather here to worship, we gather here to worship the one who is the Redeemer, the one who has made it possible for us to be with God forever. And how do we know that's true? We know it's true because He is God. He is the Creator He is the head of the church. He is the one who conquered death, and he is the one who is offering us redemption. And for many of us who have come to Christ at some point in our past, we need to remember as we get up every Sunday and we come to this place, we have the opportunity, the privilege of celebrating who he is. And if you're here today and you've never come to know Christ, then know that that is what is available to you as well, to gather not just for another meeting, but to gather to remember who he is and to see what he has called us to and changed us to be in Christ. See, friends, we will, we will do many things and reorganize our lives in order to, to be in, in, the, in the presence or to watch the press conference of somebody who will change just a few of our evenings. But how much more so do we have the privilege of gathering every Sunday to worship the one who has prepared our eternity? We come together because of who he is. Verse 23 concludes and reminds us that knowing who he is, we are called to continue in the faith. And that's my charge to us today. As we gather at the beginning of another school year, the beginning of another ministry year, let us continue to be steadfast in our faith because of who he is. Now, I'm going to conclude our service today in, in a little bit of a different way. Many times we end our service by having a song that we sing in response, but today I want to have a song that is sung over us, a song that reminds us of that day when everything will be reconciled to God, when Jesus has returned to the earth and he offers us life eternal. 
And I want us to just reflect upon that because in, in the words of this song and in the words of this passage, uh, we're reminded of the privilege we have of worshiping this God who has this in store for us. So let me pray, and then I invite you to worship as we have this song sung for us. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to, to be together today and for the opportunity to look in your word. Thank you that you have revealed to us who Jesus is so that we know who we are worshiping today. Father, I pray that we would be people of steadfast faith and hope for this week and next week, but also for the rest of our lives, trusting in Christ for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Savior eternally 